0: Let the word go the challenge,
1: the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s is a pioneering program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. That looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of shared values. Was real. Sixty years later, we examine our divisions, our connections, our shared pains and successes in a new program called Challenge 2.0. They have been called the king of fish. Historic runs were described as so prolific, there were almost enough salmon to walk across the river without getting your feet wet. They were the primary source of nutrition for native peoples. Although these majestic fish repeatedly endured the worst of natural disasters in this region, volcanic eruptions, earthquakes, glaciation, and mega floods. Just one century of Western civilization has now left their survival in doubt. In the 1950s, the Columbia Snake River Basin was the most prolific salmon habitat in the world. 30,000 returned to Idaho's Redfish Lake alone. But in 1992, only one completed the journey, a solitary sockeye salmon, nicknamed Lonesome Larry. The most storied salmon fishery was at Celilo Falls on the Columbia with a history of more than 10,000 years. But when the Dalles Dam began operation in 1957, the falls were submerged, disappeared in just hours, as did the fishery and native villages. Hydropower is one of the five H's threatening salmon survival, as described by scientist David Montgomery. The others, habitat, harvest, hatcheries and history, He suggests, as do the native people seeking to address those threats, that there is a sixth H, hubris. This is the Ice Harbor Dam, one of four such dams on the Lower Snake River. The science has clearly implicated all four of these dams as bearing responsibility for the precipitous decline of salmon here and farther upriver. All four populations of salmon and steelhead here are at risk of extinction. And the major tribes that live both here in the Snake River Basin and the larger Columbia River Basin say that is putting at risk what they call their lifeways, their culture, their diet, and their religion. So this is a very important topic that is central to the identity of the entire Pacific Northwest and certainly to the tribal nations that are here in the Pacific Northwest. And we're very fortunate to have with us Shannon Wheeler, who is the tribal chair for the Nez Perce. Shannon, thank you so much for joining us on this program today. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to be able to share our story once again uh, with you. And it just feels good to be here. Well, we've had the opportunity to speak before. And I know that it's very useful for people that are watching this. Some may be familiar with the issues, some that may not. Uh, I think one is just the amount of history, the sense of connection to the land and the water. And I think that those of us that are not indigenous, that are not native to this land, may be able to trace our heritage back, one, two hundred years, five, six generations. It's a very different matter for the Nez Perce and the other tribes in this area. Could you sort of give us a sense of how far back that connection goes and what the nature of that connection is? Yeah, that's
0: a a good question. I appreciate that question because a lot of times, you know, we associate ourselves just to our family lineage, uh, Mm -hmm. which is uh, um, very important, but also uh, within tribal nations, we associate our lineage uh, to the land and to the water and to you know the, what we are a part of, we're not uh, separate from that. So mm-hmm. I think that's kind of unique for for our tribes. Are I think you know if we look around the world, we sh- we should all kind of uh, tie ourselves to the land. Mm-hmm. And I think that's uh, where we've been. And and as far as you know, any type of uh, record, you know, archaeological records it's
1: at least 16,500 years for us. Mm -hmm. Most of us are only seeing what we're seeing now or perhaps a couple decades in the past. What observations, what stories were passed on to you uh, and perhaps family or friends from prior generations, grandparents or their parents, uh, looking back at what they saw and what they experienced in this region, both relating to salmon, which is going to be a major part of our talk, but the relationship with the land and the nature of the land overall. I think just the interaction that we are able to have and the stories that come
0: from, uh, you know, your parents or grandparents of of their interaction, where whether it was on a hill slope or uh, traveling to a fishing site or, you know, you're at a hunting camp or you could be just at your favorite swimming hole. And, and those type of stories and that interaction was truly important to uh Um, those stories being carried on and and I think those are the types of stories that have uh, always been within our uh, communities within our tribal nation that uh, that was carried on uh, for purpose of just conversation. And a lot of times there was specific teachings that mm-hmm. uh, if you are good at something and you wanted to pursue uh, a skill mm-hmm. that was made available to you. Mm-hmm. And and I think uh, those conversations are deeper conversations, which is definitely something that is uh, within, within the conversations that, that we've had to get us to where we're at today, to that Mm -hmm. understanding, still the deep understanding
1: of our relationship to the land. Any particular teachings or experiences that were very influential for you personally? You know,
0: honestly, just being in the water for me, uh, Mm -hmm. being around fishing growing up and uh, uh, traveling to the different places is great distances when you're a five-year-old kid to be in a vehicle uh, for five or six or seven hours to go fishing and mm-hmm. and then landing finally and and getting to a place where the water was too swift for you to even get near it and having to stay at camp or and and just that type of teaching is that you know the parents are protecting you uh... Mm -hmm. if you're able and you're old enough and strong enough to be able to go out and challenge uh... that but you Mm -hmm. also have to respect that because of you know things can happen when you're out in the mountains uh... you know 6,000 feet up, and a long ways from any hospital. Uh, you have to be careful, and you have mm-hmm. to be aware of your surroundings. And I think you know those types of things of, of identifying you know the different plants that are out there, the different animals. Uh, I think those things are all part of growing up, and and you earn that respect. and And the things that uh, a lot of them do, the different uh, you know it could be. Uh, understanding how a deer trail works or Mm -hmm. or understanding how you know the migration of fish and and how they defend themselves in the water and so you learn different things and of course you understand that and and try to grow from that but those are life lessons that you that are hands-on and you're able to take that in and have a really deep appreciation Mm -hmm. for that versus reading it uh, uh, you know on a document which sometimes some people can relate to that really good but other times you know if you're hands on and you're out there in the mix uh, hands in the dirt, uh,
1: feet in the water you know I think you're, uh, I think you're getting uh, a little bit more there. In the major communities say in western Washington or so forth uh, their experience with salmon is what they see wrapped up at the local supermarket and that I would think generates a very different mindset an ability to really understand some of the issues that we're facing right now. Uh, How do you think that plays a role? I think there's, uh, you know, if if you're only going to the
0: market for your uh, salmon or your your sustenance, and that does create uh, a bit of a barrier for you to a deeper understanding of the relationship to the land, Uh, but there's also uh, an understanding that, you know, within family, a lot of times there's prayer, mm-hmm. and you're praying, uh, having a prayer before your meal. And I think that's, you know, thanking the Creator for, you know, uh, what was prepared for you on that day and and how you consume that and how it nourishes you. I think you will start catching a, a, a small understanding of that, uh, and then when you interact a little bit with the land a little more, I think you get a deeper understanding of that. It could be, you know, a bird in your yard or a squirrel running mm-hmm. across a, a telephone pole or a line or whatever it is. And, and I think eventually uh, you will come to understand that there's more to it than just
1: a, a, a product wrapped in some plastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it accurate to say that the importance of salmon really isn't just as a food source? Uh, to your people, to the other uh, tribal nations that are involved in this issue, Uh, but it goes well beyond diet to culture and perhaps even spirituality, religion.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's um,
1: You know, as I mentioned,
0: you know, watching, trying to actually catch a fish, you know, and Mm -hmm. it's being able to defend itself and place itself in in places that it's difficult to see it. Uh, Sometimes you can think you're looking in the clearest river that there is and you just see rocks and but there's actually yeah. f- there's actually fish in there and so they're able to you know uh, uh, defend themselves in a manner which I think is important to be able to understand that as a fisherman, but it's also um, you know learning from learning from their actions uh, uh, what they've done in their life and understanding you know, uh, their distances that they travel and, you know, the swift
1: water that they're in. Uh, I think there's a lot to learn from that. And it leads also, it would seem, to a different understanding that there aren't humans up here and the rest of creation, salmon and other wildlife down here, but in fact, it's part of a whole. That is, that is uh, an understanding
0: that we have, you know, we see ourselves uh, equal to and we don't place ourselves above. Mm-hmm. Uh, our foods and uh, the land and the water and uh, its who we are it's what we're made up of and, and uh, if we were to look at our reflection in the water uh, I don't believe that we would see you know your face and your hair you would actually see you know the uh, hillsides on the other side the mm-hmm. trees and, and that's just a reflection of you being in that uh, being within that uh, realm of of nature and and it's like I'm a part of this I'm not I'm not aside from this Mm -hmm. you know I mean for someone that was just say from the inner city or someone that just spent time on a in a basketball gym Mm -hmm. you know you're you're in the gym and you're maybe you make the basketball team and maybe you're sitting on the bench and you're watching the game and watching the team maybe you're understanding what they're doing out there uh, and then the coach puts you in, you still can't just watch the game. Mm-hmm. You know, you're actually a part of the game. And it's the same same thing with with us as human beings. We're interacting with the land and we're actually a part of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so what we do affect that. And, and so just like on a basketball court, if you're doing the things, necessary things that you have to do in order to score a goal, then uh, you have an understanding of of how you should be uh, acting or reacting out there on a the basketball court, okay. which you can take that into life and and say, okay, what I'm doing here is I'm looking at it, uh, I'm looking at the landscape, and once I go out into the landscape and um, actually uh, having an impact on it, and okay. if I'm impacting in a negative manner, then I have to understand that what I've mm-hmm. done
1: has has uh, had a negative uh, effect on all that's around me. Part of the understanding in the larger sense uh, stems from the fact that the Nez Perce have been very much involved in terms of research, either original research or participating in research on salmon, what sustains salmon and what is damaging them. Can you sort of summarize for us some of the research that uh, your tribal nation has been involved in and what you found with that? That yeah, we, there's
0: extensive research that we've done. Uh, you know, just a few of the highlights. Uh, of course, the one of the main things that we've done recently was understanding the the quasi-extinction threshold mm-hmm. of uh, native spawners uh, returning to their uh, headwaters, and we've uh, over the course of the last five or six years, uh, there was a, a four-year period there where um, of the populations were at uh, that threshold. Mm -hmm. So 50 or fewer spawners returned for four consecutive years. Now last year, a couple of those uh, had a, f- a few over fifty, mm-hmm. but still teetering around uh, that level. And so this year we'll see. Uh, hopefully things uh, get a little better this year. The fish are cyclical, and so mm-hmm. hopefully uh, the runs come up. But we've also been in a spill regime that's been favorable to to the migration of, mm-hmm. of the juvenile smolts. So we'll we'll see what that is and what what happens there. But we, some of our um, uh, uh, climate team have done studies on ridges mm-hmm. uh, that have uh, open fields, and so uh, the runoff on those uh, generally, if there was uh, trees still on top of those in those areas that have been cleared out, you know, back in the early 1900s and uh, converted to farmland. Those ridges probably would hold the snow uh, pack a little better Mm -hmm. and the runoff wouldn't be rushing down a hillside and bringing sediment with it that Mm -hmm. um, uh, is sometimes bad for uh, the habitat. So we're starting to recognize and see things like that and understanding that we operate from ridgetop to ridgetop, which is another thing. Mm that we as a tribe do uh, within our studies is we we look from ridge
1: top to ridgetop when we look at the water system. Not simply the river stream itself. I think some people get the sense that okay this problem in salmon has developed here in the Pacific Northwest it's unique we've some are just learning about it but in fact we've seen this pattern repeated uh, in northern Europe along the Atlantic coast etc. Uh, do you think it's instructive to look at the same patterns and how they've been repeated in those areas uh, in this area? Yeah I think that's important because of course history tends to repeat itself. Mm-hmm. And,
0: and uh, if we haven't learned in, uh, from those areas then we should learn from those areas. Mm-hmm. And, and I think uh, what's important here is
1: that uh, you know we shouldn't just turn a blind eye to, uh, to that. Salmon are not only of worth because of the centrality of them to diet and culture and faith, but also they 're an indicator species of the overall health of an ecosystem then aren't they exactly they're, you know they're,
0: what happens to them happens to the rest of the system, and they're a big part of you know carrying nutrients uh, um, from the ocean and back to the ocean mm-hmm. and I think uh, um... you know being able to have that diversity in themselves and uh... to be able to transfer from fresh to salt water and then from uh... the ocean depths to six thousand feet you know i mean Mm -hmm. that's uh... that's a big difference not a lot of creatures can actually do that and and they're able to do that so it shows the strength of them but it also you know we look at the building and Building blocks of, of nature and mm-hmm. several different uh, indicator species across the across the globe as they're as they're being affected, they have these ripple effects on on the land itself. I mean, look at the bison and look at the plains mm-hmm. and and look what's happened there with the grasses that were normally there. Uh, it's just changed the whole ecosystem, and it's not always for the better. Uh, it could be initially that some things have uh, people have benefited from it, but uh, is you know does that does that replace a hundred million bison uh, in the effects that those have? Those have had positive effects on on the land itself of why you're able to grow such uh, good crops in those mm-hmm. areas and in the land in the Pacific Northwest where they're teeming with millions of salmon and nutrients that are being have been distributed over the landscape for you know, millions of years, mm-hmm. uh, that has had an effect in the process
1: of, of, the, uh, of the making of what we know the world today. Treaty obligations, uh, these are definite obligations. It is observing the law. Uh, could you maybe, for our viewers and listeners, expand on that a little bit, that this is not just an informal agreement, but it was the force of law uh, in exchange for lands? Yeah, that's a uh, a good, um, I guess, observation of a
0: treaty, mm-hmm. right, uh, for the surface of it. And uh, as we look at treaty uh, and our interaction with uh, the United States of America uh, from sovereign to sovereign, mm-hmm. you know, we, we talk about um, Lewis and Clark in 1805, we talk about uh, Governor Stevens in 1855, but we talk about also what was brought to that uh, 1855 treaty that was negotiated at arm's length. And, and uh, when we look at it under specifically Article 3, which secures a way of life mm-hmm. for us and uh, allows us to fish, hunt, gather at all of these usual and accustomed places, well, it comes with that uh, um our obligation to the salmon our obligation to the land to the water so it comes a way of life and Mm -hmm. so when we bring that way of life uh, forward and we place that on the table for negotiation the united states looked at it and yeah in perpetuity you can retain those things Mm -hmm. you can always have that and so as we bargained for that the u.s. bargained and agreed to it as well and so if the US agreed to that which they did and and uh ratified it in 1859 by the Senate and it was proclaimed by the by the president I believe in April of 1859 then uh that went to the constitution of the United States mm-hmm. and under the rule of law uh you know administrations congressional leaders law enforcement courts are all bound by are subject to the rule of law mm-hmm. as you as you speak to and so that's where that way of life sits because we give up several million acres you know thirteen point two million acres as a good hmm. estimate of what we've given up for this bargain and for this way of life and you know the things that we granted uh, the united states we basically granted an easement to utilize our river systems and and waterways in common with uh, the people of the united states i mean so we actually uh, had rights that were already in existence mm-hmm. and so that's uh, a lot of people don't understand that that they feel that the united states granted us these rights they weren't granted rights they were reserved rights right and so when we look at uh, the rule of law and the understanding that uh, uh, the Constitution and Article Six, Clause Two, where the treaties sit, that the uh, congressional leaders, senators, uh, state representatives are subject to that mm-hmm. under their oath or affirmation that uh, this is this is your obligation to that, and so the treaty holds to that holds to that uh, rule of law as it sits in the Constitution. And we're all obligated to that as United States citizens to uphold that. And so when we talk about the Columbia River System of Operations, the Lower Snake River dams, those were authorized, but did they preempt a treaty? Mm -hmm. And so our treaty and our law and our understanding of what that actually means uh, is up to our interpretation. And so our interpretation is, once again, we granted an easement Mm -hmm. for a right to in perpetuity to always have fish in our waters to be able to go fish not just to dip a pole in the water and say you're fishing Mm -hmm. but to actually retrieve
1: and consume trade and utilize and when you don't have that level of fish available to you uh, those treaty rights don't tend to mean very much which is from what i understand part of the reason that there had been for a very long time, a couple of decades I believe, some legal action undertaken to get the United States government to again restore some of those aspects. Uh, Number one, is that an accurate understanding and uh, tell me a little bit about how that has culminated in a new agreement or at least an agreement to break off those legal uh, actions uh, in just the last week or two. I think, uh, you know, over the course
0: of time, uh, you know, erosion of this uh, mutual agreement has been tested. Mm -hmm. And so there's been some erosion of this treaty bridge that we once had from the United States to the Nez Perce. There was Mm -hmm. a bridge that we could both cross, and uh, we were able to enjoy that. But some places along the line that was challenged... The bridge kind of crumbled away a bit, and crumbled away a little more mm-hmm. over the years, uh, and then, then we get into places where, uh, you know, we look at uh, uh, the Harbors Act, and you know, the uh, when the dams were built, and it's like, where's that consultation at with the tribes that these things were? going to come in and they were going to decimate your fish runs which happened to be sitting in article 3 of the treaty mm-hmm. that's sitting in the Constitution of the United States and and where is that where is that consultation at where is the where is the conversation that should be happening as it did in 55? in 59 and our 58 59 61 63 and 68 Mm -hmm. where's that conversation that happened where's that mutual bridge at once again and and how is why isn't that happening with us and how did all this other stuff happen without our consultation on on development of of this system that is is going to decimate the fish then decimated the fish and now we're in a place to where we're trying to recover what's left and say hey what you've done over there has burdened us mm-hmm. you've not only transferred wealth out of the river into uh, into an agriculture economy uh, an energy economy uh, tourism economy but you've also but what you've left us over
1: here with nothing in in our bag are very little in our bag So this brings up some very interesting uh, and troubling questions and some real challenges. And I think I am very appreciative of the fact that you agreed to allow this conversation to move forth into some of the uh, events that have transpired more recently. But what we're going to do is that deserves added attention in the form of a separate conversation. So we're going to take a break right now and then come back in next week's episode to discuss these questions further. So thank you very much. Uh, Chairman Shannon Wheeler and thank you all of you for tuning into this episode of Challenge 2.0 and I'd invite you to be sure to tune in to next week's edition to see us pick up our conversation. Thank you very much. If you've enjoyed this program, found our conversations to be informative, entertaining, and thought-provoking, and the vision inspiring of people from different backgrounds who can disagree without being disagreeable, perhaps you might consider supporting our program with a contribution. Your support will not only help our program continue, it will also support the broader efforts of Paths to Understanding, our supporting parent nonprofit organization.